Section eighteen of Wings and the Child by E. Nesbit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter eight. The end. You will have noticed that though I began by pointing out that children differ as much as grown-up people do, and that the individual character and temperament of one child are not the character and temperament of another. Yet I have throughout spoken of the needs of the child, as though the needs of all children were the same. That is because, in the body of this work, I have been dealing with the needs of children as a genus, and not with those of the individual or species. There are certain needs common to all children, needs as universal as the need for food, raiment, warmth, and light. Such are the needs for sympathy and justice, leisure and liberty. These things are admitted by all but the driest economists to be the rights of adults, but not, alas, always admitted as the rights of children. And I have tried to show a little what it is that is essential to the true well-being of all children. The hungers and thirsts of the individual spirit cannot be dealt with by any but those in close relation to the individual child. I have tried to lay down broad outlines, to make suggestions, to point out pleasant ways leading to pleasant places. Parents, teachers, pastors and masters will make the application, or the variation, in every individual case. One of the things that is the matter with modern education is the absence of the conception of personal idiosyncrasies, tastes, character and temperament. For the matter of that it is this indifference to personality which makes the whole of our civilization vulgar and vain. Our education treats children as though they were all cast in one mould. It treats men and women as though they, in their sphere, differed not at all one from another. You will say that it is impossible, in a great country and a great school, to find out the personal tastes and wishes, hopes, dreams, powers and possibilities of individuals, and you are quite right. That is why large schools and large communities fail so detestably in the very objects of their existence. Schools are intended to educate, and they merely instruct. Communities are—at least I suppose they are—intended to enable their members to live happy and useful lives as free citizens, and they only succeed in making slaves of the many and tyrants of the few. The machinery of government and the machinery of so-called education is too big. What it has to deal with is too big, for any fine result to be possible. If we are ever to get out of children, and men and women, anything like the best of which they are capable, we shall have to have much smaller schools, and much smaller communities. Some sort of beautiful and useful corporate life is possible in a place the size of Bedford. It is not possible in a place the size of London. Ten or twenty children in a class can be treated as individual human beings, and the best that is in them drawn out by a sympathetic understanding of personal traits and characteristics. But a class of seventy or eighty must be treated as a machine, of which the little live units are but wheels and cogs. It can, as a machine, be made to do certain things. The component parts of it can be made to contribute their share to the general result even as the bright and helpless parts of a machine contribute to its activity. But you can never get out of the children composing such a class, anything approaching the fine result, 
which can be achieved by an education based on the broad lines of what is good for children, with a superstructure of delicate perception of what is good for the individual child. Dick, Tom, and Harry can join in certain lessons and certain games, but there will always be some matters in which Dick is not in the least like Tom, and Harry is quite different from both the others. The people who govern us talk about education. They talk greatly, and a little they do. But they will not do the one simple, straightforward thing, which is as essential to the growth of the mind as vital religion is to the growth of the soul. Any teacher in any elementary school knows what is needed, but those in power do not know it. They will make scholarships as plentiful as blackberries, they will do all sorts of fine things for secondary education. The one thing they will not do is to reduce the size of classes in elementary schools. And so long as this is not done, the millions we spend yearly on education are, to a pitiably great extent, millions wasted. We might almost as well take at least half the money, put it in bags, tie it up with red tape, and drop it over London Bridge. Or still better, spend the money in monthly exhibitions of free fireworks, which would at least give the children and the grown-ups one jolly evening in thirty. A small class can be taught, and taught well, by a teacher of as average ability as ever tumbled head over heels from London to York. But a large class your average teacher will never get at all. It takes a genius and an orator to speak intelligibly to more than fifteen people. I sometimes wonder if teachers know how much of their teaching their scholars miss altogether. Fail to see, fail to grasp, do not know is there. Between the careless or overworked teacher, and the timid and rather stupid child, there is a great gulf fixed. To such a child the voice of the teacher is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, crying quite aimlessly in a wilderness of unintelligible jargon. Many boys, in public as well as elementary schools, by the way, go through their whole school life scraping through somehow, and never once having a clear idea of anything that they are doing, hardly ever a glimpse of what anything is about, or that anything has any reasonable relation to anything else. It is rather like a miracle, whichever way you take it, but there it is, and a miracle which might be made impossible and unnecessary by a little sensible, commonplace legislation. We want smaller classes, and we want those classes better taught. That is to say, we want more teachers, and better paid teachers. We want our teachers to be placed in a position of certain comfort, that they shall not be living in the house of poverty, with the wolf of worry always nosing round the door, distracting their attention from what should be their chief thought, for most of the months of the year. We want longer holidays, and a better provision for happiness in those holidays, both for teachers and children. We want every teacher and every child to have a real holiday, not merely an absence from school. In a word, we want more money spent on schools, and less on jails and reformatories. It cannot be put too plainly that the nation which will not pay for her schools must pay for her prisons and asylums. People don't seem to mind so much paying for prisons and workhouses. What they really hate seems to be paying for schools. And yet how well, in the end, such spending would pay us! There is no darkness but ignorance, 
and we have now such a chance as has never been the lot of men since time began, a chance to light enough lamps to dispel that darkness. If only we would take that chance. Even from the meanest point of view we ought to take it. It would be cheaper in the end. Schools are cheaper than prisons. Now that I have written the words, I don't like the look of them, and looking back through this book I see that most of what I have written applies to the kind of children who are in little danger of going to prison. Children in comfortable homes, with enough of, at any rate, material well-being. Most of my book refers to the class that is not taught in council schools, and that will not be sent to a reformatory if the Eighth Commandment is not learnt in one lesson. This class is called the upper-middle class, and it does not go to the council schools because it has money to go elsewhere. The children of this class are, in brain and heart, not superior to the children of what are called the working classes. Place the middle-class children in the surroundings of the slum-child, and thereupon the middle-class child would grow as a slum-child grows, as the plant debarred from light grows, not straight. What we want is that there should be a distribution of wealth so changed from the one that now destroys the nation's balance, as to put every parent in a position to pay for his child's education, and that the nation's schools should be so superlatively better than all other schools that no parent would dream of sending his child to any school but that provided by the nation for the nation's children. And now that it comes to good-bye, I am sorry to say it. I feel that I have only been touching the fringe of the greatest problem in the world, that there is very much which I have left unsaid, or which I might have said differently and better. One might go on for all one's life thinking and writing about children and their needs, and always there would be more unsaid than said, less thought than food for thought. If the thoughts which I have striven to set forth give food for thought in others, if my little candle may help to kindle a great torch, I shall look back on the writing of this book as a great privilege, and the memory of the hours spent on it I shall treasure with a glad and grateful heart. End of Wings and the Child by E. Nesbitt Recording by Corrie Samuel